Welcome to the Sunday message from Hollyview Church in Boring, Oregon. We gather each Sunday morning at 10.30 as a worshiping community of Jesus followers on mission to see God glorified in our lives, our cities, and around the world. At Hollyview, the Bible serves as our foundation and guide for both life and ministry. It tells the story of God and the story of us. We believe the better we know the themes and flow of the biblical story, the better we will be able to find our little place in God's grand storyline. Thank you for joining us. And now, here's this week's message from Hollyview Church as guest speaker Eric Wood from Gresham Bible Church brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 4 with a message entitled, The End of the Line. Good morning, Hollyview Church. I bring you greetings from Gresham Bible Church. Um, thank you for having me again. Always a good sign to be welcomed back. Is anyone in a hurry? Anybody? Does anybody respond when someone asks you, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm just so busy. Anybody? Anybody in a hurry? The good news for us this morning is that our God is not in a hurry. He is at work to bring all his purposes to their appointed end. At his own pace. Waiting is a part of God's divine design. Waiting is no accident. It is purposed by our good God. You just glance through Genesis real quick and you see God promised Noah there would be a flood. And then Noah waited 120 years for it to rain. God promised Abraham and Sarah a child. They waited 25 years. God made Jacob wait 14 years before he got the wife he wanted. Joseph had to wait a considerable time to see his father and family, and he didn't get back home until after his death. They carried his bones back up to the promised land. There are many examples of God promising and his saints waiting. We have been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to return. God uses the waiting to refine us, to strengthen our faith and trust in him. In Isaiah chapter 40, God tells his prophet to comfort his people. So, Isaiah proclaims God's greatness. He is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth. And then in verse 31, Isaiah says, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God is not in a hurry. God anointed David king way back in 1 Samuel 16. David could have been as young as 10 years old. Are there any 10-year-olds here this morning? Right there. I have one. My son here is 10. And trying to imagine God anointing my 10-year-old son as the next king, you get why Jesse didn't bring him in from the field. Anyway, (laughs) David now, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, 
David's 30 years old. He's only king of part of Israel, just Judah, just Judah down in the south. He's still waiting for God to bring all his purposes to their appointed end. And currently, the nation of Israel is in turmoil. Civil war is raging. Saul, the king, is dead. Jonathan, the heir apparent, is dead. Two of Jonathan's brothers, Abinadab and Malkishua, dead. The commander of Saul's army, Abner, dead. Saul's house is falling. David is growing stronger. Saul has one son left, and this morning, we get to see how things work out for Saul's son, Ishbosheth. That's a fun one. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in front of you. 2 Samuel chapter 4 can be found on page 240. 2 Samuel chapter 4. This is God's word. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands, and the name of the one was Ba'anah, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin, from Beeroth. For Beeroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, Rechab and Ba'anah, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'anah his brother escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. And brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Ba'anah his brother, the sons of Ramon the Beerothite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, When one told me, behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. This is God's word. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help. 
Father, all scripture is inspired, is breathed out by you, is profitable for teaching and reproof and training in righteousness, even, even the violence. And so we ask for your help that your Holy Spirit would come and would open our eyes, that we would behold wonderful things from your law, that you would change us, and that you would make us more like your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Here is where we're going this morning. First, we're going to look at the end of Saul's house. This is verses 1 through 4. Uh, those first four verses summarize where Saul's house currently stands. And interestingly, the end of the section is punctuated by Mephibosheth's lame feet. So feet in the first section. Uh, section 2 is the end of Ishbosheth. This is verses 5 through 7, and we see the assassination of this puppet king of Israel. And this section is punctuated by Ishbosheth's head in a basket. And then part three is the end of the traitors. These king-killing brothers get more than they bargained for when they head down and see David. And there's more body parts here. Uh, this section's punctuated by the hands and feet of these brothers and by Ishbosheth's head. And this is a macabre chapter. So let's look again at verse 1 and see the state of Saul's house. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Remember back a couple weeks ago, 2 Samuel chapter 2, Abner, commander of Saul's army, he's the true power broker in Israel. He hears what's going on down south in Hebron that David has moved in and he's been appointed king of Judah. Abner's not ready to relinquish his power just yet, so he moves into action. Saul still has a living son, and so we see in verses 8 and 9 of 2 Samuel chapter 2 that Abner took Ishbosheth, brought him over to Mahanaim, and made him king over Israel. Ishbosheth is the puppet. Abner's in control here. But then, recall what happened last week. In chapter 3, Abner is murdered. He caught a sword in the gut. The puppet's strings have been cut. And so when Ishbosheth hears the news of Abner's death, his courage failed. And literally it says, his hands dropped. A puppet with no strings is just a doll in a pile on the ground. And as the king goes, so go the people. So all Israel was dismayed. Their government was falling apart. They had asked God for a king. God gave them a king. King Saul failed. God removed the king. Abner set up this new puppet, and he's already failing. And so we can ask ourselves, is there anyone who will rise up to fill the power vacuum left by Abner's death? And we meet two possible candidates in verse 2 and 3. Verse 2, now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Ba'anah, and the name of the other, Rechab. 
sons of Ramon, a man of Benjamin, from Beeroth. For Beeroth was also counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. So to fill this power vacuum, may I present Ba'ana and Rechab. So we see they are captains, and that's good. That implies power and authority and leadership. And they are captains of raiding bands. And these guys were bad news. They were brave. They were courageous. They go into the village. They kill everyone. They steal the livestock. These dudes were bad dudes. Most significantly, though, we see in this section that they are men of Benjamin. They are part of Saul's tribe. They are part of Ishbosheth's tribe. The, the little parenthetical note there in verse 3 is to remind the reader that Beeroth is really actually part of the territory of Benjamin. These are men from the same tribe as the fallen king. So perhaps they will serve the new king and reignite his courage and strengthen his hands. Perhaps. But before we get there, we're introduced to one more member of Saul's house in verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So, Saul's son, Ishbosheth, has no courage left. His hands are slackened. Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, is lame. His feet are powerless. He is unfit to rule. He can't be the military commander since he's dependent on others to survive, and he wouldn't be able to go to war. More of Mephibosheth's story is found in chapter 9, so we'll see him again in a few weeks. He's inserted here into our narrative this morning to show how weak Saul's house has become. Saul's son, King Ishbosheth, lacks the courage necessary to lead. And Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, lacks many other things as a helpless cripple, lame in his feet. Saul's house is at the end. Now, we look to the end of Ishbosheth in verse 5. Now the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, Rechab and Ba'anah, set out. And about the heat of the day, they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Ba'anah, his brother, escaped. These brothers are not here to serve the king. They're not interested in reigniting his courage or strengthening his hands. They sneak into Ishbosheth's house under the guise of, oh, just here to get some wheat. And they stab the king in the stomach. In the first four chapters of 2 Samuel, this is already the third guy to get stabbed in the stomach. In chapter 2, you have Joab's brother, Asahel. He's the fast one, right? He's swift as foot, swift of foot as a wild gazelle. He chases down Abner, and Abner, in verse 23 of chapter 2, struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear so that the spear came out at his back, and he fell there and died where he was. 
It's gruesome. And then, in retaliation, Joab, in chapter 3, took Abner aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died. All this violence highlights the disunity of the nation of Israel. And we've witnessed this. As disunity rises, so does violence. The longer the people of Israel delay what God has ordained, that David is the true king, the more they can count on this kind of violence and chaos. David was anointed king 15 years ago, yet Saul wouldn't yield, Abner wouldn't yield, and chaos and violence followed them. Real quick sidebar before we get to verse 7. Let me tell you. I love football. Okay, there, I said it. I bleed Oklahoma Sooner Red. And Boomer, all right. Where'd that come from? I bleed Oklahoma Sooner Red. Man, okay. And Seahawks, Navy, and Action Green. Uh, Ryan and I have been to a few games up in Seattle. And they're a blast. Really fun. But truthfully, I prefer watching football on TV. Just a couple reasons. My couch is way more comfortable than those bleachers. I'm protected from the elements. Doesn't matter if it rain, snow, hail. Uh, but the main reason I prefer football on TV is instant replay. Foot football happens fast. <laughs> and sometimes... You don't know where to look, so you need the commentator to tell you what to focus on. Sometimes you need a different angle of the play. Sometimes you need it slowed down. And that's what we get here in verse 7. We get an instant replay of what just happened in verse 6. We get a new angle of this play. Look at verse 7. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by the way of the Arabah all night. This instant replay technique is used often in Hebrew literature. Our Bible, in fact, begins with an example. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's what happened. That's what he did. And then the next couple chapters expand that, give you more detail. He said, let there be light. He separated the water from the land. You get more of what actually happened. Here, at the end of verse 6, we might be left wondering, well, is Ishbosheth dead? I mean, all verse 6 says is, they stabbed him and they escaped. Perhaps you can survive a stab wound. But in the instant replay of verse 7, we are left without a doubt. They struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. That's clear. They took his head, the, the trophy, the proof of what they had done, and they sneak about 60 miles down south to Hebron, and they go under the cover of darkness to avoid being seen by any other travelers. They also avoid detection on their journey by taking a lightly traveled route down the Jordan Rift Valley, the Arabah. And this is the end of Ishbosheth, his head in a basket on the way down to Hebron. Section three, we cover the end of the traitors. 
What will become of these king-killing brothers? Uh, verse 8. They went by way of the Arabah all night, and verse 8, and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul and on his offspring. Rechab and Baanah travel all night, arrive at David's place, and they present their trophy. They, they brought the head to try to get ahead in David's kingdom. Right, Ryan? Yeah, okay. They are presenting David with his kingdom. The last obstacle has been removed. And they even claim they were doing the Lord's work. Saul was your enemy, King David, and here is the head of Saul's son. The Lord has done it. The Lord has avenged you. They are crediting God for their sinful deeds. They are presuming on God for approval of their wickedness. Dale Ralph Davis wrote an excellent commentary on 2 Samuel, and he says, They come with blood on their hands, but theology on their lips, expecting that the latter will magically bleach the former. And David is not buying it. Oh, you guys think you were doing the Lord's work? I don't think so. This is David, after all. This is the man who was committed to King Saul, even as Saul tried over and over to kill him. David says to Saul in 1 Samuel 24, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And two chapters later, David has an opportunity to kill Saul and take the throne. And David says, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David respected the office of king. But more importantly, David respected the Lord's anointing. He would not raise his hand against Saul. He even swore to Saul that he would not cut off his offspring. So when these brothers waltz in with the head of Saul's son, David responds in verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Baanah his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berethite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. And stop right there. The Lord lives. The Lord is alive. The Lord is at work. As the Lord lives, David says, and David is making an oath here to the brothers. He's making a promise. The Lord lives, and it is he who has redeemed my life. I don't need you wicked men to rescue me. The Lord is on my side. Every adversity David has faced, the Lord has rescued him. Every bear Every lion, every giant, every psychotic king, every scheming captain, the Lord is his redeemer. David continues in verse 10. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. 
How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? David does not approve of the killing of this righteous man. Ishbosheth here is righteous in the sense that he hadn't wronged David, he hadn't done anything deserving of death. Some translations, if you have a translation other than ESV, you might see that this word here is translated innocent. They killed an innocent man. And he was in his own house. You expect to be safe in your own house, right? Same with Ishbosheth. And he wasn't just in his own house, he was on his bed. He's resting. There's no guards around, it's probably not even any doors locked. Well, these brothers don't know King David very well. Or they hadn't yet heard what happened to the Amalekite in chapter 1, who brought the news of Saul's death. Either way, the reward they were expecting is not going to be the reward they will be receiving. And the king is acting righteously here, both here and in chapter 1. The law of Israel clearly forbids murder. And the law clearly outlines the penalty of murder for murder. In Exodus 20, the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And then in Leviticus 24, an expansion of the law, an explanation of the law, whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. This this principle goes back even further. It goes all the way to the flood. God destroys the world. God protects Noah and his family and two of each animal. The flood ends. The waters recede. And God makes a covenant promise to Noah. He even gives him the rainbow as a sign that he will never again destroy the world with water. And right there, right in the midst of the Noahic covenant, God says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Human life is to be valued so highly that it is protected by this life for life principle. Because God made man in his own image. We are precious image bearers of God. Human life is to be valued so highly that it is protected by this system of punishment because God made man in his own image. And so, to murder another human being is to murder what is most like God and is thus implicitly an attack on God himself. The king is acting righteously here. Back to 2 Samuel in verse 12. And God commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. David had sworn to Saul that he would not cut off Saul's offspring, that he would not destroy Saul's house. So David, the rightful king, acts here as the righteous judge. He has Rechab and Ba'anah executed. And not only that, he has them mutilated. He cuts off their hands, with which they murdered their kinsmen and their king. 
and he cuts off their feet with which they ran to him to claim their reward. He hangs them in public to serve as a witness and a testimony to David's innocence in the killing of Ishbosheth, as well as a warning that the king is a righteous judge and evil will be punished. And lastly, he honors Ishbosheth by burying his head alongside Abner. David has waited for the Lord. Now, every obstacle has been removed. He's all set up to be king over all of Israel, just as God promised, way back in 1 Samuel 16. He's innocent of all of this violent bloodshed. He has waited for the Lord. One of the great things about David's story in the Bible is that we often get to read his thoughts. Here's a sampling of what David has to say about waiting for the Lord. In Psalm 31, he says, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. In Psalm 32, he says, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In Psalm 39, he says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. And I want to focus this morning particularly on Psalm 37. So turn over in your Bible to Psalm 37. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 435. I want you to have it open because we're really going to fly through it. I'm not even going to read it, but I want you to be able to see it. Psalm 37 provides clear instruction for us on how to wait for the Lord. David wrote this psalm, and as we've seen, David waited well. Maybe you're waiting for this pandemic to end. How do you do that faithfully? How do you maintain your Christian witness and your faith in God in the midst of such divisiveness and uncertainty? Maybe you're sick and you're waiting for healing. Or maybe you know someone who's sick and waiting for healing. Maybe you're waiting for a child to believe the gospel. Maybe you're waiting for a parent to believe the gospel, or a friend, or a neighbor, or a coworker. Maybe you're waiting for a job interview, or a career change, or maybe you're just waiting to get through school so you can move on with your life. Whatever you're going through, here are seven Actions to take while you wait for the Lord. Yes, actions. We should wait actively, not lazily. We should wait actively. Psalm 37, verse 3, this is number one. Trust in the Lord. God is in the waiting. He is purposing the wait. God is not in a hurry. He is at work to bring all his purposes to their appointed end. Trust him. Number two is from verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. Listen to him in his word. Speak to him in prayer. Sing to him in song. Look at him in a sunrise. Take steps to delight in the Lord and not the things of this world. Number three is from verse five. Commit your way to the Lord. Give your waiting 
your worry, your anxiety to the Lord. Tell him, God, this pandemic is wearing me thin. I need your help to live right and to be a good gospel witness to my coworkers. Help me. And then look at verse 5. Trust in him and he will act. Take it to the bank. Number 4 is from verse 7. Be still before the Lord. Here's where we're really getting in tune with the Lord. Be still. Unplug your mind from all distractions. Take out your earbuds. Sometimes waiting is just waiting. Be still before the Lord. And verse 7 also, this is number 5. Don't worry about others prospering. If you're waiting for something and you see everyone around you with that something, the temptation is to compare ourselves to them and wonder why them and not me. And here's my struggle in the waiting. I spent the first 15 years of our marriage underemployed. The temptation was always there to compare myself to my friends. Why are they so successful and I'm here struggling through this? It's gotten better recently, but that whisper is still present. I need to actively shut it down because that temptation can turn quickly to envy and suddenly we're sinning in our waiting. And that leads right to step six from verse eight. Refrain from anger. If we let envy take hold, anger can soon follow. Anger at God, right? That question, why them and not me? Anger at the others who are prospering while we're still waiting. Refrain from anger. And Davis tell Davis. <laughs> Miss you, buddy. David tells us why we can refrain. It's because the evildoers shall be cut off. That's, the, that's in verse 9. God is dealing with them. Let God deal with them. Watch yourself and refrain from anger. Don't let it take root. And number 7, all the way down in verse 27, turn from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. Psalm 37 ends with a promise. A promise of salvation and deliverance for the righteous. Verse 39, the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The salvation of the righteous is possible because King Jesus came down and walked among us. And King Jesus came as the righteous judge that those who trust and believe in him would be themselves declared righteous. He can do this because he laid down his life of his own accord. And he paid the penalty of our sins and took the punishment that we deserved. He nailed all the charges against us to the cross and covered them in his blood. He bled and he died and he was buried. And on the third day he rose. 
he conquered death and sin. And he ascended to heaven. And now, here we are, waiting for him to return. He will return to judge the living and the dead. May he find us waiting actively, trusting him, committing our ways to him, delighting in him, just like King David did. And Jesus, would you come quickly? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your help. And I thank you most of all that King Jesus came. And I thank you that he is coming again. Would you find us waiting faithfully? And Jesus, would you come quickly? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from Hollyview Church. We invite you to join us in person for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. You can find us on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off of Highway 212 between Boring and Damascus, Oregon. Or find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Together, we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word, to share God's grace and truth. Again, whether online or in person, thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church. Church.